Alright, what is up you guys? Welcome to the Abstract Audio Podcast. I'm your host, Derek. We have an interesting show today ranging from dissecting Jay and Beyonce's recent Ape Shit video, which initially I thought was just stunning with it being in the Louvre and everything. Uh, it turns out there's deeper meaning and uh, some pretty dope symbolism in it. Uh, so we'll be getting into that. Following that will be Kanye possibly producing yet another album and Drake and his billboards and uh, what they may tell us about his upcoming album. Um, and then we'll be finishing with Lobsters, their immortality and how it's their gift and their curse. So with that being said, um, I first I wanted to remind you guys because I forgot on the last episode um, to check out the playlist. This last week's playlist was if not my favorite, one of my favorite, and uh, just, yeah, a very melancholy vibe. You've got um, Juice World, you've got St. John, you've got Billie Eilish. Um, yeah, just a chill drive to, vibe to, whatever playlist, um, but definitely one of my favorite. So with that being said, let's get into this album review. So Jay and Beyonce, a.k.a. The Carters, um, what was this, last Saturday? Yeah, last Saturday, random as fuck on a Saturday. Um, but when you're Jay and Beyonce, I guess you you do what you want, right? Um, and it also seemed like so. It was I don't know where the concert was, but I know it was the dropping of this album coincided with the end of that concert, and it was just kind of like one of those moments where it's like, oh well, the album's out now, and uh, the the timing seemed odd to me, you know, like it it didn't. I don't know, it didn't seem that special for the fucking end of a concert. There, to me, it seems like, well, we need more material. We're about to go on tour of the U.S., so uh, I guess at the end of this concert, we'll fucking drop the album. And then everyone at that concert never gets to see those songs performed, or, you know, or for a fucking long time, if they're even lucky enough to to see them performed again, with, you know, obviously with both Jay and Beyonce. But, um, yeah, the timing was odd to me. But it is dope, I'll say, uh, and, and something that's only possible in this digital streaming age for an artist of that profile to just work on a project and randomly drop it. And, uh, but, but then again, that's Jay and Beyonce. They can, they can always do that. They could drop fucking, they could drop another album next weekend and be like, that's right, bitches, it was, there's a part two. And everyone would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> it would just be like Christmas all over again right, um, so this, of course, being the same weekend that Nas's album dropped, in fact, what, Thursday night, didn't even get the whole weekend, like, why, why you gotta do that, why you gotta do that to Nas, bro, um, but I don't know, man, like, so, initially, there was a lot of speculation, uh, that it was intentional, that they dropped the album Saturday, Nas's weekend, or, or maybe, you know, people were speculating, maybe it was more to go at Yay because this, these were his good music projects, whatever, um, and initially, I, I thought the same, I entertained the idea, uh, but I, I, obviously, it's, whenever you have Jay and Nas in any situation where, you, you know, you can drum up assumptions that, and whatever was intentional, just because they have such a historic beef, you know, and it's just known, they're, they're known opponents who have since, obviously, you know, uh, grown up and put that behind them and for that reason I, I've, I've come to the conclusion I, I really don't think it was intentional 
Um, plus, even even saying that it was, you know, I think Jay-Z's just too grown for that. Um, but say that it was, say that it was intentional, right? What does that even do in the streaming age, you know? So you figure just about everyone has an account on a streaming service. And you have access to both of those albums. This isn't back when you had to pay fifteen ninety nine for an album or whatever, right? Like, I could see then how it would eat into another album sales. Um, but in the streaming age, it doesn't make sense. Especially when Nas's, his whole album's runtime is, I think, a little over 30 minutes. So it's like, you know, you have access to both. You can listen to both. I really don't get how one album will hurt the sales of another. But if people are talking about social media, I get that, that, you know, there's, there's, you're going to be, it's going to be hard to find an album more impactful than a Jay and Beyonce album. You know, people just eat that shit up. They, they have very devoted fans. So, um, I don't know, but I, I really don't think that will reflect in sales. So, uh, with that said, I mean, with that fucking rambling done, this is just all the shit leading up to the album, you know, my interpretations. Also with title, man, like the running joke on Twitter is that, well, I got to fucking use my third email account or my fifth email account to do to subscribe for yet another trial on title. And mind you, at least in this case, it was only one day exclusivity, I believe, for title. And then it came to all the other streaming services. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't personally see the benefit. Um, I know Jay Z has talked about it like it's black owned business, and you know why would you support the man when you can support black owned business? Uh, you know whatever. Not in those specific words. This is me paraphrasing, but uh, yeah, and he, and that's some of the lyrics that he gets to on the album. Um, so let's get into it. The album opens with "Summer." It's a dope, relaxed sensual song but it's odd to me that this is the intro um even now even after listening to the entire album a couple of times it's weird to me that they chose this to be the intro it's just uh not necessarily that it's slow it's just that it's very middle of the road like very mediocre for a jay and beyonce track it's nothing special and i would figure you start the album with something it doesn't have to be you know, have a, have a heavy bass, whatever, you know, but, uh, I don't know, just the song in general is very middle ground to me, um, then we get into Ape Shit, obviously a banger, um, the airy skirt, skirt, skirt vocal on it is insane, I don't know if that was Takeoff, if that was Quavo, or if that was Offset, but shout out to whichever one of the Migos that was, um, initially I thought it was Travis, that's exactly who it fucking sounds like, but uh, regardless, when when there's a a vocal like that that accents the instrumental, that makes the song for me, and uh, this that's what it did in this case. Um, and then Jay Z goes on to say, "I said no to the Super Bowl. You don't need me. I are you you need me. I don't need you. Every night we in the end zone till the NFL we in stadiums too." I just thought it was powerful. I don't know if it's a money thing you know, his reason for not performing at the Super Bowl, or if it's, you know, uh, because of Kaepernick, but whichever, I thought it was a powerful line, and, uh, yeah, and then Beyonce on the track, she snapped, um, I've never really heard Beyonce 
rap like that. And, uh, well, maybe on a DJ Khaled track. What was it called? Um, I think it was called Top Off or something like that. But even on that, she didn't snap like she did on this. And I really thought it was dope to hear her like that. Um, then we get into Boss. And uh, I don't I don't know, man. It's very regal, I'll say, with the horns. But uh, And then Jay-Z says, uh, dudes rather work for the man than work with me. Just so they can pretend they're on my level. That shit is irking to me. Um, Obviously, directly at Kanye. I don't know, man. It's been a while since he left Tidal. But clearly, Jay still feels away, And clearly, their relationship has a lot of work to do. You know, whether it be Jay feeling away about Kanye leaving Tidal. Or, obviously, Ye feeling away about multiple things. Um, You know, the fucking wedding uh, his children not, not playing with Jay's children, you know, uh, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done there, uh, but I, I think it's obvious that line is directly at Ye, and then, uh, we get into nice, uh, Jay says, the time to remind me I'm black again, huh, and that, I think, was in, in, uh, in regard to his recent court case with title, and, uh, it was just powerful, it was very heavy, to hear that shit, and, and it's, it's always fascinating to me to hear how Jay thinks about the shit that's going on, you know, his take on it, and, uh, yeah, I don't know, just fucking heavy, time to remind me I'm black again, um, the chanting on the chorus is lame to me, I don't know, I just couldn't fuck with it, but, uh, then Beyonce goes on to say, if I gave two fucks about streaming numbers, I would have put Lemonade up on Spotify, which, um, yeah, they're known for doing this, you know, Jay and Beyonce in particular, really, because they're the only ones that can, um, they sacrifice that money that they're missing out on, because instead, I guess the message that they're sending is, is worth more, you know, by keeping the exclusivity, but, um, I don't know, it was just kind of dope to hear her address that, and, uh, and then we get into 713, uh, the beat is hard as fuck from the jump, um, Beyonce's singing sounds off to me on this track, though, um, not, not bad, but it just sounds off over the instrumental, uh, but the play on Still Dre, the cadence from Still Dre is dope, I really fucked with that, and then Jay detailing his mistakes is fascinating from a fan's perspective, um, and then we get into my favorite track, Friends, if if not my favorite track, definitely top two on the album. Um, so Beyonce says, my friends are goals, your friends are foes. I thought that shit was dope. And then Jay with the fucking lyricism here. He says, tight circle, no squares. I'm geometrically opposed to you. Y'all like to try angles. Y'all like to troll, do you? Y'all like to, y'all, y'all talk around hoes, do you? Y'all don't follow codes, do you? We know everything you say from dudes close to you, you emotional. When I say free the dogs, I free them. That's how Meek got his freedom. Just a dope set of lyrics. I really fucked with that. And, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Just dope. I really fuck with it. It's dope that Jay's giving us these verses. I thought it, to be honest, I, I really thought that it would be a lot of throwaway verses or just basic verses. But, um, I don't know. It's just dope. I, I fucking, at least for the Jay features alone um i fuck with the album but uh so yeah it was dope also i think it's one of the more topical tracks 
you know, coming into the album, I thought, you know, I, I don't know, I guess you could safely assume it's going to be a lot of braggadocious rap, right? Because really, what else do they have to talk about? I mean, of course, the relationship, but that's like, what, one track, maybe two? And then, and then what? You know, streaming, title, <laughs> like, you know, so it was dope to hear a somewhat topical, topical track. Obviously not that deep, but it was topical to hear both uh, J and B's take on Friends and just, uh, yeah, so I don't know, I fucked with it. And Beyonce's vocals are really the thing that sets it off, set it off. That cadence, it's so reminiscent of Drake to me. I won't go as far as to say he wrote it or co-wrote or whatever, but sounds very Drake-ish. It's, it's definitely Drake-influenced, I'll say that. Uh, then we get into Heard About Us. It was dope until I heard the beat, uh, you know, just the bass. It, it was just too poppy for me. Then Jay says, bitch know me, I've been me since the cocaine. Bitch know B, she don't even need a whole name. I thought that shit was hard. It's still very braggadocious, you know, just talking their shit. But with bars like that, I can't be that mad at it. Um, And then we get into Black Effect. The instrumental is one of the dopest on the project, in my opinion. Uh, Jay says, Dapper Dan, therefore I am the culture. Um, I made my own wave, so now the anti-title. I'm living a no-sock life just to spite you. Um, I thought that shit was pretty dope. Nothing nothing crazy, but I thought it was dope, especially the Dapper Dan line. Because if you guys are unaware, Dapper Dan, I'm not super knowledgeable on it, but I know that he was very influential in Harlem um, in, what, the 80s? Um, and he would take luxury brands, you know, their prints or their, their logos and repurpose them. Essentially what you see now. And now we have Gucci collaborating with Dapper Dan. So really everything's come full circle. And this was in the past year, I believe, or the past year or two years. So I don't know that that line was really dope to me. Um, cause he was the culture all along. And now Gucci's doing that same shit that he was doing back fucking 20 years ago. So the influence is obvious, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, let's see, it's one of Jay's best verses on the project, I feel, um, and then Beyonce says, I will never let you, I will never let you shoot the nose off my pharaoh, which is dope, um, just because of the whole, uh, the sphinx, you know, the nose being gone on it, they believe that it was intentionally done, uh, or there are theories, I should say, that it was intentionally done because that would be the feature that gives away it was black royalty. You know, it was a black nose, a black feature. And um, so, yeah, just super dope. I, I fuck with it. And then uh, the closing track, Love Happy. So just from the jump, it sounds like a, a celebration. Just the minute the beat drops. And uh, and it was so Beyonce says, yeah, you fucked up the first stone. We had to get remarried. And it's just so dope to hear her uh, going at Jay like she does. And so this this is what really stands out on this track to me. It's dope when two talented lyricists go bar for bar, right? Just period in a song when you have two lyricists trading bars. But when you have a power couple like Jay and Beyonce doing that, you know, both rapping on a track and addressing their just their opinions about each other essentially walking us through the emotions with you know all of the recent drama 
I thought it was insanely dope. And um, for that reason alone and how open and honest they are in this track, it's uh, it fluctuates between being my favorite track and my second favorite track. I would say um, Friends is sonically my favorite track, but um, Love Happy being my favorite just because of the transparency and them pulling the pulling the track off the way that they did. I just really appreciate um, the execution of the concept on the track. So what do I think about the album? Um, going into it, I had no expectations and a lot of assumptions. So, you know, with Beyonce, I've never been an avid fan. Obviously, I can appreciate the greatness, the talent, uh, just, you know, one of the biggest superstars ever. And um, yeah, I mean, and then a, a couple of huge moments. Let's not forget Bonnie and Clyde with Jay. The track was huge. And then, of course, most importantly to me, uh, the Soldier track, because Wayne's verse on that track, uh, the Destiny Child track, was really what started his entire run. And um, yeah, so it was just a fucking moment, to say the least. But uh, obviously, Jay, I'm a huge fan. Um, And so I don't know, man, I I was really unsure. I thought it would be too much singing for me or whatever but I was pleasantly surprised very pleasantly surprised um I mean I can and will listen back to this album uh you know for for a while I really uh just as a whole it flows well there are not there there are definitely no terrible tracks like I was saying just with the intro the summer track it's very uh middle ground for me but um it is it being one of the slower tracks it's easily skippable to me and then the the album after that vibes pretty well together i fuck with it um i thought i was surprised and maybe that has a lot of influence on why i think it's so good but uh yeah i think it's a fucking great album what jay and beyonce are talking about is uh pertinent it's of the moment and it's interesting to hear them because you know being too uh, very talented and wealthy black voices, they, uh, I don't know, it's always going to be fascinating to hear their take on whatever it may be, because, you know, their words alone shift the fucking culture, so with that being said, now we can get into the video for Ape Shit, um, dissecting the video, initially, I thought, just like with the album, I thought it was going to be a lot of well, I thought the track itself, the video itself, was just braggadocious. You know, that's why it was in the Louvre. And maybe all these assumptions are my fuck-up. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. But uh, I can admit that, yeah, I thought them filming in the Louvre was just some, you know, on some braggadocious shit. Like, oh, you guys are always talking about fine art or whatever. Well, we're shooting our fucking music video in the Louvre. And, uh, you know, I just thought it was a stunt like that. But there's actually uh, very dope context, hidden meaning. So let's get into it. Um, why the Louvre allowed Beyonce and Jay-Z to film their ape shit video. David, Garakalt, Da Vinci. They were just a few of the artists Beyonce and Jay-Z strategically featured in their new ape shit vi- music video, performing under the name The Carters. Uh, because they were given private access to the Louvre to groove around whichever masterpieces they wanted. 
as us plebeians can't usually get close enough to the winged victory of Solomon Thrice without being yelled at by another patron to move out of their photo, we couldn't help but ponder to Apollo, the Greek god of the arts, how was the museum able to grant such a big request? So Beyonce and Jay-Z visited the Louvre four times in the last 10 years. During their last visit in May 2018, they explained their idea of filming. A spokesperson for the museum told Vulture, uh, who could forget their infamous 2014 trip, the deadlines were very tight, but the Louvre was quickly convinced because the synopsis showed a real attachment to the museum and its beloved artworks. While the Louvre wouldn't comment on the monetary figure the couple had to fork over, we should know it's not inherently unusual for the museum to grant access for entertainment purposes. As detailed in the, in the New York Times, the Louvre typically hosts around 500 shoots a year for film, television, and music projects, and for, and for around 17,000, you can have private access to the galleries for an entire day. So this was interesting. Really what got me looking into these articles in the first place was um, because I had seen, I think it was on Twitter, uh, someone saying that it's it's extremely impressive that they're filming in the Louvre because only four people get chosen to film in the Louvre or some, some outrageous number like that, right? And, uh, and I was just fascinated by it. So I was like, fuck, I'm going to look into that, fact check it, whatever. And uh, yeah, there are a lot more. It's still very limited, you know, very exclusive. But, um, and, and to be able to, I don't know, it's it's a huge thing, not as huge as I thought or as someone on Twitter made it out to be. But um, we're going to get into the meaning behind all of the symbolism. And this, this shit is intriguing. More than 8 million people visited the Louvre in 2017. The vast majority of them would, would have rubbed shoulders with the same famous artworks that appeared this week in the Carter's music video for the launch track from their new album, Everything is Love. Uh, I doubt many gyrated in leggings and a bra in front of Jacquees, Louis David's monument, monumental canvas, the consecration of the Emperor Napoleon, as Beyonce does in the video, but I imagine people will now. Blame Napoleon for encouraging such behavior. Uh, when he was presented with the canvas, having insisted on several alterations, like reducing the size of Notre Dame Cathedral to make him look bigger, the delighted Emperor said, this is not a painting, one walks in this picture. Uh, the Carters get up to all sorts of in this personalized take on Night at the Museum, uh, the title of which made use of asterisks, asterisks when, it was, when it was uploaded to YouTube last weekend, given its bad language. Uh, in one scene, they appear dressed in white like marble statues, standing regally at the top of the winged victory of Solomon Samothrace staircase as the magnificent winged goddess Nike rises from behind their heads, while their loyal subjects lie down before them. In another, they hang out with the ancient great the ancient great Sphinx of Tanis, which came from the temple of Amun Tanis, once once the pharaoh's seat of power in the dim and distant twenty first and twenty second dynasties. Jay Z stands aside while Beyonce dances frenetically. Uh, like most museum visitors, they take regular breaks Chilling out on the loose plush sofa seats, Jay-Z manspreading as Beyonce uses his shoulder as a chair as a chair back. They appear to be having a great time. 
Although the, although the longer the video goes on, the more you realize there is something slightly odd about their visit. I'm pretty sure that just about every single one of the Louvre's 8 million plus visitors take the opportunity to have a good look at the masterpieces on show. The Carters do not, at least not until the dying seconds of their 6 minute promo, when they face each other before slowly turning towards Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. This isn't an oversight, it's a point, maybe the point being made um they're not in the louvre to look reverentially at great works of european art they're there to make their own great work of art the museum and its contents are not the star of this show they're there to play a part uh pops pops power couple along with director ricky says have produced a series of vignettes, all of which play the same dramatic device, inserting a contemporary black artistic voice into a white, western, male-dominated establishment narrative. Uh, I don't know if they specifically chose the consecration of the Emperor Napoleon to dance in front of because it was, because it was colonizing French general who repealed anti-slavery laws in 1802, but I imagine the fact hadn't escaped their notice. There is no ambiguity with the elegantly composed image they curate in front of in front of David's painting Portrait of Madame Recamier, Recamier which is heavily laden with symbolism. Uh, two black women are sitting on the floor wearing light brown tights and body-hugging beige vests. They are in profile, facing away from each other, and positioned at either side of David's painting of the famous 19th century French socialite. Linking the two women together is a flowing piece of white material, each end of which they wear on their head like a turban. Above them, Madame, Re Madame Recamier reclines on her antique sofa, dressed in a simple sleeveless white dress, her head turned, uh, her head turned towards the viewer. The design of the sofa is similar to that of a sleigh bed, with rising wooden ends. It is these bed ends that the women on the floor echo, the variance in the darkness of their skin matching the different tones of the wood in the painting. The cloth that links them represents the dress worn by the painting's subject. The message is clear. It was on the, ba it was on the backs of subjugated black people from the French colonies that Madame Recamier was able to enjoy her life of leisure and pleasure. The Carter's Louvre takeover isn't just about protest, it's about power too. We meet them in the museum's Saul de Etats gallery, which was originally built for Napoleon III to preside over major leg legislative sessions in the late 1850s. Today, it houses the Louvre's Venetian Re Renaissance paintings, as well as the picture for, wi for which it is thought 80% of the visitors come to see, the Mona Lisa. And that's where we find our besuited pop stars, Beyonce dressed in pink, Jay-Z in mint green. They look at us with deadpan expressions, mimicking the Mona Lisa's, whose portrait hangs between them. We get what they are saying. We are not looking at one iconic face. We're looking at three. The Carters are not just giving themselves the same status as da Vinci's masterpiece. They are transforming the world's most famous painting from a single image to a triptych. Uh, the song for which the promo has been made sets the tone. It's profane title, Ape Shit, repeated in every chorus. Have you ever seen a crowd going ape shit? I can't believe we made it. The duet, they, they duet as they take ownership of Paris's temple of cultural icons, which until their residency had barely a black face in it. We live in lavish, lavish, Beyonce sings, draped in white silk. I got expensive fabrics, I got expensive habits. 
These are not words of apology for being overtly materialistic. She's boasting. Here she is, a successful black woman, talking about her opulent taste while enjoying being the inheritor of Napoleon's, uh, and in his backyard, too. The, the video is a smart piece of work, albeit a little rushed at times. Not every shot works, not every idea lands. But the overall point is powerfully put. The game is up for those institutions, be it Hollywood, Broadway, or the Louvre, which we have ignored black artists, refuse them a voice, or a seat at the top table. So this dissection was fascinating to me. It's just, uh, you know, and then you look at the track Ape Shit, just the title, Ape Shit, and it's such a trap record like you know um and for that to be the one that they put in the louvre and even this translates even to the uh the album cover you know the mona lisa in the back while the woman is braiding this dude's hair it's a powerful image man um the shit that they're saying is very powerful and uh yeah i I don't know i mean and to think that it was all initially by me assumed to be you know just some stunt and just, yeah, just another place to film, because they could, um, so I was blown away, again, maybe it was my low expectations, but, uh, I, I thought that shit was dope, so I hope you guys have seen the video, if not, definitely check it out, it's a dope video, so now I'm going to get into my thoughts on the Louis Vuitton Spring Summer 19 show, Virgil's first show, uh, first breaking down the clothes, or, like, my standout thoughts on the clothes, I took some notes, and then, um, and then lastly, the, just the entirety of the show and kind of what it meant. So, uh, firstly, I liked the use of the marble buttons. It felt luxe as fuck. Um, the combination of suits and utility bags is interesting. I don't know if I fully like the look, but it is, uh, it's an interesting look. Um, the porcelain chains are phenomenal. Maybe my favorite piece from the show are just just favorite thing from the show, I guess, um, the sheer shirt, the sheer shirt, or it's one in particular, it had the LV logo across it, a white sheer shirt, um, I typically don't fuck with sheer shirts in general, just the concept, um, it can be worn in dope ways, but, uh, this one with the LV logo was, I don't know, it just looked dope, maybe it's just me glamorizing the logo, or, you know, I don't know, but I, I fucked with it, um, the asymmetrical suit with a strap is quintessential Virgil unconventional design. That had to be my favorite clothing piece between that and the porcelain chains. Um, I would say that's, that's the standout though, to me. I've just never seen shit like that. And, uh, it was fucking gorgeous. And then the color blocking with the gloves on such luxurious fits is unique and interesting. Um, the runners are cool, but they could be anything on the market right now. They're, they're nothing special at all. That felt very lazy. Maybe the most lazy, the laziest part of the show to me. Um, the mint green puffer jacket had to be my second favorite piece. Uh, not even because of construction, just color alone. You know, a puffer in that faded mint color is fucking gorgeous. Um, the green dye pattern is a dope accent, but in a full fit, it looked terrible. So there was these they were patterned bags and when they were worn uh like when it was just accenting the outfit it looked dope but then when you had the dude with the entire outfit on the shit just looked i don't know it looked fucking moldy or some shit i just didn't fuck with 
the entire outfit. I like the way it accented it. The, uh, you know, when it was used in moderation, it was fly. Um, then the tie-dye sheer long sleeve is interesting. Uh, I'm, I don't know. It was an interesting look to me. It looked like a soccer jersey. I don't know. Uh, I would like to see how that, how people are going to wear it. Um, and Virgil's basketball shoes look beautifully retro. I fuck with them. Uh, they, they're very, obviously the colors paying homage to Jordan's, but, uh, well, I feel like it's obvious. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it's just because it, those colors symbolize retro basketball. I don't know, but it's dope nonetheless. Um, and then the bags with contrasting chains are very Virgil. The brown with white is gorgeous, but the black bags with orange chains are basic with the chain removed. Um, I can see how people would criticize that. And, you know, just as lazy design. But uh, the clear bags are interesting and on trend, but look tacky to me. So the clear, um, it's like this PVC material. You know, I've seen clothing pieces made of it. I just don't like the trend as a whole. So even in the show, it was tacky to me. But um, I like the introduction of the Wizard of Oz collab with the silhouette on the on the deep purple crew neck. I thought it was very discreet and uh, just a dope way of introducing it. Um, and then the Wizard of Oz floral anorak is fly as fuck. It was very Supreme-esque. Um, the black and white coloration of the pattern looked abstract. It was like, it, from a distance, it looked like bleach spots. And I really fucked with that. Um, so that's kind of like the notes that I had on the show. There were like 54 looks, I think. And... Um, or on the clothing from the show, rather. But the show as a whole is uh, such a moment. Don't get me wrong. The clothing needed to be on point. It, it couldn't be just anything. But uh, for Virgil to achieve this is huge. Like, if you create in any artistic way, I don't see how you couldn't be motivated by this. This shit was huge. And then uh, Virgil having... Let's see, Don C, Jasper, um, Cuddy, Yay, all there. And, you know, he had, I think, Jasper, um, Playboy Cardi, Cuddy, and uh, I, that's all that I can remember right now. But he had them walk in the show. Shit was monumental. Uh, such a celebration, man. I'm getting chills just talking about it. This shit was beautiful. Um, to see Virgil achieve what he has. And then the moment, obviously with uh him and Kanye I don't bro I don't see how you could see that shit and not cry like that or at least tear up that shit is uh that shit's a moment man to make it from from just wearing LV as something you know like just to flex and now to be the men's designer that shit was such a moment and to see both of them express themselves in such a vulnerable way, you know, in a public place was very dope. I think that shit was strong. And that's that's a moment that's going to be inspirational to me for years to come, tens of years to come. Um, just all of that, that achievement and work culminating in one moment. Fucking phenomenal. And I can't say enough. I mean, it's, 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 this shit is beautiful, man such a, a moment in time and uh what resonates is Virgil's quote something to the effect of you can't limit me I've seen 
I've seen Barack Obama, you know, become president. We felt the tectonic plates shift. And uh, this is another example of that, that shift in culture and just changing times. I mean, I can't say enough, but it's, it's fucking, it's beautiful. It's such a moment. Now let's get into some Star Wars news. I mean, what a shift, right? Um, Random as fuck. But uh, bizarre news. So fans are trying to campaign to remake The Last Jedi. So uh, a lot of the people didn't like The Last Jedi. Whether it's a longtime fan or newcomers to the franchise, most loathe the film for adding a lot of new things to the old lore of the Force and for the character arcs of Finn, Rose, and General Holdo, believing they weren't written well. It was even pulled from China's cinemas for underperforming, which is fucking crazy, despite doing well in the States. Now some fans are looking to remake the film, with an agenda to quote-unquote not make one half of the fandom happy over the other, but to make a film that the fandom in general as a whole enjoys. This is a campaign to provide Disney with an opportunity to course correct with the Star Wars franchise. Remake The Last Jedi said in a recent statement, uh, The fans are completely divided and the core goal of Star Wars has been abandoned. What I don't think, what I think they're missing is so much of the franchise. When you have a franchise that exists as long as Star Wars has, so much of it is nostalgia. So I think when you have a franchise that lasts this long, it really faces a dilemma where it's not going to please everyone. You know, people remember it differently and they hold on tighter to that memory of what it was and the concepts that it introduced, whatever, the characters, whatever. And as they grow, the the franchise just does not age well, man. When you see a franchise strung out like this, and uh, I, I don't think that's simple, like it's simple to say, but to do, I think it's fucking impossible. You know, Star Wars fans are like the pickiest fans. And to think that you can please all of them, you're going to fucking go crazy. It's impossible. And uh, and I think nostalgia plays a huge part in that. So the campaign site states a number of unnamed producers of uh, on this initiative have pledged to cover the budget. But pledging is open for everyone. The campaign even states it's already raised over 13 million U.S. dollars. But this, but this can't be proven since the fundraising is on their site. Many fans, including celebrities, Star Wars writers, and even the director of The Last Jedi himself, Rian Johnson, uh, have commented on the campaign. So, Seth Rogen says... Yo, I'm very confused as to what your goal is here. You literally want to spend $200 million remaking The Last Jedi, and someone is giving you that money? I don't get it. Uh, He goes on, how did you get investors without a script or stars or director or legal ability to make this movie? Those have been important elements in the past. Um, So understandably critical. I I think this ended up being a fucking scam, at least to me. It, It hasn't been confirmed. But, you know, once I looked into it, it was bizarre as fuck. I was like, are you serious? And then I look into it, and I, I think it's just bullshit. Um, I don't know what they have to gain from it, but I definitely don't think they raised $13 million. That That's fucking astronomical. The figure's astronomical. And then the possibility of it being made through, you know, just in legal terms. Like, what? I, I mean, it's a fucking joke, but it's entertaining. 
Um, so Chuck Wendig says, uh, okay, fifth question. You now have over $6 million pledged, but on June 15th, you ran a poll which got 15 people. Are those 15 people giving you around 400k each? And if you can, and if you can introduce me to these people, I could use some cash. I'm a little tight. Uh, so I think he sees through the shit. And then, uh, Rian Johnson saying, please, please, please actually happen, please. Um, so just bizarre fucking news, man. Um, and then following that, there were claims made that Star Wars, that there were, there were reports that, um, the spinoffs were done. So originally it was reported, it is being reported that Lucasfilm's will be will put plans for uh future a Star Wars story spin-offs on hold as it focuses its attention on the upcoming episode 9 film and what the next trilogy of Star Wars films will be after that film according to Collider the previously rumored Obi-Wan films uh the previously rumored Obi-Wan film was in active development but it now appears those involved are no longer attached to the project Sources also say the previous, uh, the previously announced Boba Fett film from Logan director James Mangold will be included in this change of strategy, as early talks took place before the lackluster release of Solo, a Star Wars story, and its mixed reviews. Solo was the lowest performing Star Wars film thus far, earning $84.4 million U.S. million in its opening weekend, grossing a total of 192.8 million US domestically and 339.5 million worldwide. Um but then it was there was an update on the story and Lucasfilm sources clarified these reports with ABC News stating that there there are still multiple Star Wars films currently in development that have not been officially announced. They also said the rumors were inaccurate and speculative at best. So it's going to be interesting to see how they go about the uh, the upcoming spinoffs, given the lackluster performance of Solo. I think Solo to to the franchise was really kind of a uh, an eye opener, you know, to be like, oh, you can fuck up a Star Wars film. Like people will not go see a Star Wars film. That shit is crazy to me, man. That franchise is like bigger than the world, and you know, fans. I don't know, man. It's going to be interesting. I think they just need to work on new stories. Of course, even that will be criticized to hell. But uh, going back and exploring these characters uh, clearly isn't that appealing to fans. Um, or maybe see that's the thing. Maybe the fans are conflicted, and it is appealing, but they're bored. And they're like in their 30s, 40s, 50s now. And they just need something to bitch about. I don't know. But uh, fascinating shit. It's going to be interesting to see how the next film performs. Um, I, I believe it's going to be episode 9. But, uh, you know, with it not being a spinoff, I expect it to do better. But how much better? Um, it's going to be interesting. So now we have... Uh, I don't. I guess tech news still somewhat film news. So, um, Selena Gomez stars in new IGTV horror film. So, Selena Gomez is the star of a new, incredibly creepy-looking horror movie called A Love Story. The short film, directed by Petra Collins, is set to debut on Instagram's new long-form video platform, IGTV, with an unspecified date. Collins shared a clip and still 
and stills from the film on her Instagram, which you can take a look at below. So if you guys want to look at these photos and the teaser, it's uh, Petra Petra F. Collins on, uh, on Instagram. And the first one is uh, a photo of Selena hunched over in the bath with a face coming out of her back, which is pretty odd. Um, we, the next photo is, uh, Selena leaning on this woman's knee and the woman's face is made up of contorted hands. That's, uh, that's, that's great. And then we have a photo of Selena in the bathtub, uh, yet again, and, uh, a face coming out of the water. So, looks like some freaky deaky shit to me, but... <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, so Collins has discussed her desire to make a horror film with Gomez in the past. Uh, I love The Exorcist and the things that come from inside you, Collins told Vanity Fair last May. The things that are a little more subtle and things that you deal with from inwards. And I feel like it's something Selena and I both love talking about. That topic is sort of dear to us. The duo previously worked together on the music, the music video for Selena Gomez's fetish last year. So I wanted to talk about this for two reasons. Uh, firstly, th one of the cover photos uh, that I've seen for this film is Selena yet again in the tub with no makeup. And uh, it's, of course, been said time and time again, she looks young as fuck, right? In this photo, bro, she looks like she's like fucking 10. It's it's crazy. It's fucking weird. Um, but I guess it'll work well for her you know, once she gets into her 40s, 50s, whatever, but, yeah, like, you, you thought she looked young before, this shit is fucking crazy, man, um, and then, <laughs> completely aside from the film, but then also, uh, I'm somewhat excited for the film, not a huge fan of horror, but, um, interested to see how they explore these subtle feelings that she talks about, and, uh, more so, what's fascinating is, a film on IGTV, because I think everyone's still exploring how to use it, I mean, it's so brand new, it was what, fucking last week that it was announced, and, uh, or rolled out, and, um, yeah, people are still trying to figure, okay, what type of content do you do, do you create exclusive content for IGTV, aside from any possible YouTube content you may have, or, yeah, just people are figuring out strategically how to integrate it into their brand. And to see a film being made for it, it's going to be intriguing to see how it's fucking made. Is it going to be vertical? I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I think all of the fucking Instagram uh, TV video is vertical. At least all of the video that I've seen. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy, man. A fucking film. And how long will it be? Maybe it's it's called a film, but it'll be like some super short, you know, 30 minute, 20 minute. Who knows? But uh, I'm interested. So I'll be following this. So now let's get into a bit of sneaker news. We have Nike dropping the Air Force One Jester in a royal colorway. So Nike's The One Reimagined Women's Collection was reinterpreted has reinterpreted the swoosh's most iconic silhouettes. Amongst it was the classic Air Force One, which received a popular deconstructed rework dubbed the Nike Air Force One Low Jester. Having first debuted in a, tol in a tonal 
Violet Mist colorway, the Remix Classic now returns in a two-tone royal and white scheme that better highlights the model's distinctive design. Nike's Air Force One Jester is defined by its misplaced detailing. On this model, the Air Force One signature upper accents the swoosh being branded, or the swoosh branding, heel tab, and tongue tab branding patch have all slipped to the heel area, all the way, all the way to the mudguard and over the midsole. Uh, the rest of the sneaker remains the same, with small details like the perforated swoosh outline where the branding patch is usually placed, as well as a blue outsole border to round out the simple colorway. So I don't really fuck with the, if you guys have seen this, I don't really fuck with the tag on the swoosh. I wish the tags were removed, but um, even more so, I just wish that these were men's, because they, they were, they debuted in a women's collection, I get that, you know, sure, why not, um, you know, I'm really not in a position to complain, because dudes get so many exclusive, every, everything's, you know, every limited sneaker is for dudes, so it's like, okay, they're making this dope, like, women's collection, that the, the design cues are what are fascinating, uh, and what are appealing to me, this, this Air Force One is one of the most gorgeous Air Force Ones I've seen, with, uh, just the swoosh being, it's so simple, but with the swooshes being displaced, it, it's different, but it's similar, I don't know, I fuck with it, and then with this colorway being white and blue, like, you can't just make this a unisex run as far as sizing, like, come on, Nike, um, but yeah, I just, <laughs> I essentially wanted to look at this to say, come on, Nike, you need to fucking step your shit up, I, I want this, I want this sneaker, um, if I could get an all-white one, that shit would be phenomenal, uh, but yeah, I hope that they do release those in men's, because this is one of the most gorgeous reworks I've seen, uh, on the Air Force One, so now, uh, staying in sneakers, we have the Vans Vault, uh, deconstructed, and, uh, so the Vans Vault is next in line to take on the deconstructed wave, this time around, the Skate Powerhouse uses its Skate High LX and Slip-On LX silhouettes to showcase the popular aesthetic. Premium leather and suede comes come together on each model with black and marshmallow color choices for both. Its signature off-the-wall heel logo is shifted to the lateral sides with the Skate High incorporating a side zip closure for extra flair. Reminiscent of Virgil Abloh's work with Nike, you'll also find off-the-wall in quotation branding, uh, on the aforementioned zip closer, zip closures pull tab, retailing for approximately one hundred and one hundred and fifteen dollars respectively. Um, I don't know, man. I'm when I first saw this, I was intrigued, um, because for Vans to rework a model so heavily is dope to see, and the the overall aesthetic I like but it's so clearly inspired by Virgil and just this very like you know DIY deconstruction aesthetic that's it's popular amongst of course Virgil's brand but other brands as well and um it kind of sucks that it's a trend but it's also dope because I fuck with the overall aesthetic of most of the designs and it is uh crazy to think that that's what Virgil, you know, that's essentially all Virgil did to the Nike sneakers. It's ingenious in that it's so simple, but uh, it, it creates such a complex looking sneaker that's almost, 
you know, unrecognizable from its original version. I mean, the Prestos look fucking crazy, you know, turned inside out, essentially. And, uh, yeah, it's such a simple concept. So, I, I don't know, man. These I'm on the fence about. But, um, if you guys get a chance, check them out. Let me know what you think. I mean, I don't know. It is it is blatant, a blatant take on their, their best attempt at uh, Virgil's design, especially with the off-the-wall in quotations like I, I don't know man um that aspect seems a bit over you know is that that's a bit tacky but uh the aesthetic as a whole is pretty interesting to me um so yeah just wanted to express my interest in or my thoughts on both of those sneakers and now we are going to get into some video game news so hackers are tricking people into downloading fake versions of fortnite for android so Fortnite Battle Royale has hackers and malware authors taking advantage of the game's huge popularity by tricking would-be players into downloading fake versions of the Android port. With an upcoming Android port coming officially from Epic Games this summer, advertisements of a leaked version of the title has begun appearing on YouTube and multiple search engines promising the Android port ahead of its official release. The fake apps use several images and loading screens found on the iOS port to lure gamers in before it redirects users to a browser saying more apps need to be downloaded before they can play their game. No matter how many apps you download though, the game will never unlock. <laughs> There's some poor fuck out there still downloading apps to this minute. Um, this shit is grimy man. So. The fake app is not hosted in the Google Play Store, and players should be wary of the of any app that isn't. Um, it's it's bizarre to me that a game has gotten so popular that there are, I don't I guess bootlegs of it. You know, like clearly there are games that have been influenced by both Fortnite and uh, PUBG. You know, I think there was a recent what was it called? Like fucking not not bad it's royale something um i just recently saw an advertisement for it and it was like medieval a, a medieval aesthetic still just as cartoony as fortnite but that that was like all that switched up and i was like what the fuck it, it's so blatant man and uh i guess if it's working follow the model but uh yeah that shit's just bizarre to me that a game has grown in popularity that big, that not only does it have rip-offs of it made, you know, being made by other game studios, but you, you also have motherfuckers running scams for the download of the app. That's crazy to me. Um, so just watch out if you have Android. Do not, it, the port is not available yet. The official version will be, I guess, available this summer, they were saying. But, all right, so... In tech news, we have emails between Tesla's alleged saboteur and Elon Musk surfacing. This is pretty interesting. So, shortly after Tesla sued ex-employees Marty Trip over our ex-employee Marty Trip over stolen data and sabotage, the alleged saboteur released emails between Elon Musk and himself, uh, revealing a heated back and forth between the two. The email exchange presents presents it was trip who contracted or who contacted elon before tesla's lawsuit was filed the new information begins to try to unravel the whistleblower story presented by the media 
with the Tesla CEO only only taking action following Tripp's initial email. Additionally, Tesla is now increasing security measures at its Gigafactory following reports of an alleged threat made by Tripp, despite local police assuring the report was not credible. Um, so the email exchange reads from the uh, the saboteur, or the guy threatening, he says, don't worry, you have what's coming to you for the lies you have told the public and investors. Uh, Elon responds, threatening me only makes it worse for you. Uh, then the saboteur responds, I never made a threat. I simply told you that you have what's coming. Thank you for this gift. Uh, Elon says, you should have, you should you should be ashamed of yourself for framing other people. You're a horrible human being. Uh, the, the guy then responds, I never framed anyone. Uh, I never framed anyone else or even insinuated anyone else as being involved in my production of documents of your millions of dollars of waste. Safety concerns lying to investors slash the world. Putting cars on the road with safety issues is being a, hor- a horrible human being. And then uh, lastly... Elon responds, there are, liter- there are literally injuries with Model 3. It is by far the safest car in the world for any mid-sized vehicle. And of course, a company with a billion dollars in product is going to have a million dollars. Is Of course, a company with a billion dollars in product is going to have a million dollars in scrap. This is not news. However, betraying your word of honor, breaking the deal you had when Tesla gave you the job, and framing your colleagues are wrong and some come with legal penalties so it goes be well so it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out odd that this guy is threatening because of waste like that's what compelled him to speak out uh it's fucking it's a bizarre story man um i don't know i i don't expect it to get far i think this will, uh, you know, he'll be crushed in court. Just that's the way it works, period. Even if he were in the right, it's just his argument's extremely odd to me. Um, but, you know, with Tesla being such a huge company, I really think it will go on unfazed and we won't even be talking about this in a couple months. But it will be interesting to see if anything happens or develops in it. So staying with the uh, autonomous car trend, I guess, um, Uber test driver was watching Hulu when self-driving car crashed. So, as the investigation into the fatal self-driving crash back in March continues, it has now emerged that the Uber test driver in the vehicle was streaming the voice on Hulu up to the moment of the crash. The local police force in Tempe, Arizona now now believes the accident could have been avoided and uh, had the test driver in question been paying attention contradicting the initial belief that the crash was almost unavoidable. According to records from the driver's Hulu account, she had been watching The Voice for around 42 minutes before the crash took place. Despite this revelation, it is still not clear if the police will decide to change to charge the test driver. The incident led to Uber being suspended from operating self-driving cars in Arizona and launching an in-depth safety review. Um, first off, that's fucking terrible that this would lead to them suspending the testing of the cars i thought it was extremely dope that um you know that they were testing them on the road and that just you you need to you need to have that testing done right 
And I get it. People are precautious or they're wary about self-driving cars. But what this goes to show you and what it shows me, it's it's unfortunate. I laugh, but really there was a life lost here. And that, that of course, is uh, extremely unfortunate. But a, a human somehow even found a way to fuck up this... <laughs> this self-driving car crash like they they found a way to fuck up in this situation and i don't know i mean of course that's a lot of assumptions or or not even assumptions but just uh really painting my own narrative but uh because i mean if you what the fuck are you there for you know you're not there to watch the voice fam like uh it's just bizarre of course i i wish that the car would have been able to completely avoid it but that's what the test driver is there for is you know for situations like this where i guess it was because the woman came out of nowhere that it was you know she wasn't visible to the car and then once she once she was visible the car wasn't able to stop in time um so she still got the brunt of the impact but had the the human assisting driver been aware you know and and just been doing her fucking job uh it could have been avoided and this woman could still be here and they could still be testing self-driving cars which is testing that needs to be done it's inevitable we're just so uh precautious about it and uh i don't know man i just draw this back to the human and say that and figure that humans still found a way to fuck up in a self-driving car and yet the self-driving car is the blame right um just because people are already so wary about it, I don't know, um, should the woman be charged, though, that's interesting, the, uh, because it's easy to say now that you know she was so blatantly fucking up, but I don't know, man, this is one of those cases where it's, it's fascinating, it's unfortunate, but it's fascinating, because who, who's the blame, I mean, I, initially, I would say no one, should be prosecuted it's it was a you can you know like write it up as the car manufacturer or malfunctioning um and just not being able to entirely avoid that really it was the woman i don't mean to blame a, a deceased woman but it was that woman's fault for crossing right in front of this car and um had that not been done i don't believe it was in a crosswalk i think it was just in the middle of a road and uh, had that, had she just been more aware and precautious, she could she could still have her life. I don't know if she was on drugs or what, but um, I yeah, I don't think it's the driver's blame or the the assisting driver's blame. Um, you know, ultimately, I mean, I, I really do think it's the woman's blame, but uh, it's unfortunate she had to die for it, and. Uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I I really hope that the the driver, although very um <laughs> the voice, bro, the fucking voice, um although very irresponsible, she, you know, I don't think she's to blame, especially with a fucking murder. Come on, man. Um all right, so now in music news, Kanye West is supposedly set to produce a 7-track EP for Bump J and Sly Polaroid. So, already producing Ye, Kidsy Ghost, Nasir, and Tiana Taylor's uh, sophomore album, 
Kanye West is currently set to produce a 7-track EP for Bump J and Sly Polaroid. In a recent interview, Chicago rapper Bump J revealed that he and fellow Goon Squad member Sly Polaroid were invited to attend Kanye's secret recording sessions in Wyoming. Although Jay remains pretty tight-lipped about the project, they will be following Kanye's new seven-song album structure, and production will begin shortly. Uh, Bump Jay also goes on to speak about Kanye's work ethic, noting his work on Ye. I've never seen anyone work like he works. He, it was inspiring to see how passionate he is, especially since he doesn't need the money from rap. You, you really could see that he just loves to do this shit. Uh, Bump J then went on to clarify just what his writing credits on Kanye's eighth studio album really means. As far as writing, no one really writes for Kanye. He's He basically has what he wants to do already, and we're there vibing with him and, combi- and combining our brain power to bring it out of him. Um, no word yet on when the project is releasing, but stay tuned for m- more details regarding the seven-track EP Kanye West is producing for Bump J and Sly Polaroid. Um, I'm all for more Ye production, man. Especially after hearing, uh, well, all the projects, period, right? I I really do think Ye has been on point with all of these. And, uh, you know, he really deserves all the credit for that. But then, with Tayana's album, man, and that's coming up next episode, I'll be reviewing that album. Um, but goddamn Ye's production he he just needs to keep it going like he needs to keep doing this um even if even if it's seven tracks you know on every album for the rest of the year i don't give a fuck just a couple more albums i don't even know slide polaroid bro bro but <laughs> if it's kanye production i'm with it um so i don't know i'm excited i hope this happens and uh you know i hope that we do see more yay produced albums it's going to be interesting to see where we go from here i really hope that it's not the case, but I really, it seems like to me that it'll be a long ass time before we see good music releasing anything, Ye releasing anything, Ye collaborating on anything, or hopefully he, you know, he has the studio bug still, and he's still trying to record more, put out more projects, even produce, I'm with it, so uh, let's see where this goes, but now staying in music news, we have Drake uh, hinting at Scorpion details with billboards. So, with Drake's latest project set to drop on June 29th, a series of billboards teasing the album have begun appearing around the rapper's native Toronto. Uh, none of the billboards feature the previously released cover art with an image of the Scorpion uh, and OVO's signature owl motif appearing on all of them instead. As well as the album's name, date, and the scorpion theme picture other billboards tease the album's length one features the words a side b side while another comes with the text uh is there more leading drizzy fans to believe that the scorpion that scorpion could be a double album the last billboard simply features the text don't hit me when you hear this um so i don't know man yeah a side b side I guess it is just going to be a long album, which is interesting because we've been so used to seven track albums in the past weeks. Right. Or at least, you know, seven to ten tracks, seven to ten track albums, even counting uh, Beyonce and Jay's album. So clearly Drake is going with 
a different strategy, the longer album strategy, which again, I've mentioned in the past, I'm interested to see which performs better. You know, naturally you would think, okay, a seven track album with two minute songs is going to, you know, people are going to stream it more continuously than say like, for example, More Life that had what, like 19 tracks. And uh, I mean, I fucked with it all the way through time and time again. I'll just listen to that album all the way through. But I think I'm one of the exceptions. I think most people just cherry pick, put it in a playlist or whatever. And then, you know, so it limits the streams. Whereas if you would only put out 10 songs, you know, infectious songs, they're going to be infectious. They're Drake. Um, I don't know. We'll see how it performs. I mean, it's Drake, so I really don't think it matters too much in this case. But um, it'll be interesting, especially to see how many tracks A side, B side. It's like that sounds like fucking ninth, you know, anywhere between what 18 and 25 tracks um that would be my guess so the billboard's also saying don't hit me when you hear this i'm guessing he's cutting ties on this album um who knows if that's to yay i think it's easy to assume that's to yay uh and then is there more i guess alluding to a, a longer more music I don't know. I'm I'm not making the assumption on that one yet, like the article was. But uh, and then there's also one that says Fashion Week is more your thing than mine. I think obviously, clearly at Kanye. Um, so if that one applies to Kanye, I wonder if Don't Hit Me When You Hear This applies to Kanye. And what's what? <laughs> what did Kanye do, bro? Like that's still so bizarre. I mean. I really think it might be something behind the scenes as far as business that maybe has been a continued practice that Kanye, you know, that Kanye's been doing that that's been sliding Drake or just upsetting him or, uh, you know, or it's, it's the misplaced anger from Pusha. I don't know. Um, it could be shit that Drake's had on his chest for a while now, or maybe it is strategic to go at Kanye because Kanye has the name and then he could position himself above the greats, you know, kind of like your idols become your rivals, as he said in the past. I don't know. Definitely making assumptions now. We're only a few days away, which I could not be more fucking excited. Um, so, yeah, man, I mean, that's that's all of the news for today. Now we are going on to the lobster article which trust me i know it sounds random as fuck but um it's interesting it's interesting as shit so let's see so the twitter post starts bong rip exhale lobsters made a deal with the devil for conditional immortality and it backfired on them you cannot change my mind this woman goes on to explain um Okay, so basically, lobsters do not die of old age. The only the only thing time does to a lobster is make it bigger and bigger. If environmental conditions are good, uh, this is because they have a secret molecular trick over all of us sentient rubes, constant production of telomerase. Uh, this grade A big boy is a massive 22 pounds, easily 50 years old, but isn't even as big as the largest lobster ever caught in 1977 uh, with 44 pounds, estimated to be 140 years old. 
So uh, if you guys want to follow along or check this out on Twitter, there are some photos along with it. This lobster is fucking ginormous. Um, it's user lab coat lesbian. And um, so she goes on, telomeres are like shoelace caps on the ends of your chromosomes, a buffer zone, codes for, codes for nothing, keep it from unwa- unraveling. Um, look, here's, look, here's yours, the little white spots on these human chromosomes. How do these things relate to our inevitable, inevitable decline into death? Here's the deal. It's one, it's one sequence over and over for humans, T-T-A-G-G-G. Uh, every time your cells divide, they lose a little bit off the end of the telomeres, which fails to be replicated. At birth, your telomeres are 11,000 bases long. When you're old and gray, they're only about 4,000 bases long. There's something called the Hayflick limit, and that's why you and I die. Uh, when the telomeres reach a critical length, the cells just just stop dividing. Um, fuck the Hayflick limit. I do what I want is the motto of cancer and the motto of lobsters. Because they produce heaps of telomerate, telomerase, uh, telomerase is a really nifty enzyme. It carries its own RNA template to build back the lost ends of the telomeres. Uh, humans make telomerase too, but we make less and less as we age. We're coded to just let uh, sentience and death happen. And a lot of people have a lot of theories why. If you've got cells that constantly produce shitloads of telomerase and never stop, you've got cancer, my friend. As a teen, I used to like Family Guy. Uh, and what's funny is that in one episode when High Stewie asks, what if the only reason we die is because we accept it as an, ev- as an inevitability, he was kind of right. Our biology encodes death as an inevitability. Uh, death is still an inevitability through... Death is still an inevitability, though. Whenever our biology, or whether our biology encodes a plan for it or not, uh, entropy always comes for its due, and that's when even lobsters must accept. Lobsters still lose in the in the very end. Telomerized tricks, uh, telomerized tricks by time. They will never experience senescence, the decline towards death, but it still comes at some point. That point is typically molting. Uh, Lobsters never age. They keep growing and growing and growing. But their skeleton is on the outside. And it isn't exactly flexible. They need to molt and grow a new shell once they outgrow the old one. This is a very, very energetically taxing and dangerous affair. Lobsters molt the easiest in midlife. Molting casualties are, are highest in the very young and the very old. Very young lobsters molt a lot because they're growing a lot. Uh, 44 molts in their first year. This leaves them squishy and vulnerable and is quite energetically taxing. An ancient lobster colossus may not have as many predator concerns during a molt compared to the youngins. Uh, But the energy costs are what kills. Moving out of an enormous shell takes an enormous effort. Past a certain point, they just can't. At certain point, at a certain point, the effort of moving, uh, the effort of moving out just cannot be mustered by their metabolism. It's done with a mega lobster. When a mega lobster entirely stops molting, the game is drawing to a close. At that point, they're trapped in their shells, which accumulate parasites and bacteria. I have not been able to find research on whether it's disease or simply being squeezed in that in that kills in the end. 
Uh, I would love to talk to an actual invertebrate biologist on this stuff because it's so fascinating. This research would be incredibly hard to accomplish because you would have to either raise or track a good sample size of 100 to 200 year old lobsters, which are extremely rare. I've also heard that some will simply die of exhaustion mid-molt, but lack the data on the relative proportions of all these fates. But yeah, it's quite amusing, if silly and unscientific, to think of it in a poetic sense. It's like lobsters have made a deal with the devil, and the devil always gets his due. So, extremely interesting, at least to me. I hope you guys found it interesting. And uh, I hope you guys found the episode interesting. I mean, a lot of shit, a lot of random shit. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, just know that I love you guys. Um, and I'll be talking to you on the next episode. Peace.